You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. The time together now is mainly for us to ask Larry questions or provide feedback, but primarily questions. It's pretty much open, whatever you want to ask him within certain limits now. Charlie, would you uh, pray for us before we start? Lord, thanks for your presence here this week. Come and direct this time. We're grateful for who you are and what you've Well, if there are no further questions. <laughs> well, that's right. It's about time, isn't it? Just to warn you, we're going to record this, uh, not, for, not to... Uh, cause anybody any problems, but there's some great things said last time that uh, we don't want to miss. So uh, we won't hold you responsible for what you say. <laughs> but actually, the, the uh, what do you call this, non-attribution policy is now in effect. Does everybody what the non-attribution policy is? You cannot attribute what is said to anybody in particular. That's right. <laughs> this is not Jack Mayall asking this question. <clears throat> My name is Joe Spivis. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jack Mayall. <laughs> and Larry, this may be, uh, it may be an unfair question. But anyway, I'm going to ask it. Fair or not, um, could you summarize for us in five minutes in simple language what you have said the last two nights? It's an unfair question. <laughs> I can try. That, that's a serious question. You'd like me to try to do that? Yeah. Okay. Summarize in five minutes what the essence of what I'm trying to communicate this weekend and what I've said in the first two talks uh, has been. Can I now do it in four and a half? (laughs) Oh, let's see. A lot of directions possibly to go here. Um, Let's see if I can get it down to five. I think I might put it this way. That um, I I think that our culture has been sold the bill of goods. That the church needs to um, reject and needs to reclaim, and by the church, I mean the Christian community. I'm not talking about one local congregation, but Christian community, which is us, which is any time Christians gather together. We need to reclaim something that is ours, that we have the responsibility and the potential, the equipping and the enabling, to minister to each other in ways that deal with the core issues in the human soul. That the kinds of things that are going on in my life that sometimes keep me awake at night, the kind of things that in the course of my 52 years have been difficult and hard, um, that we have come to think in our Western civilization that that the real issues that are are deeply residing within us are not fundamentally spiritual soul issues. They're psychological psyche sorts of issues. Use the word psyche in a modern sense, not in the old suke biblical sense. And um, that when you look beneath the surface of people's lives, 
into what in fact is going on, you will find that the core problem that needs to be dealt with can be talked about in terms of a lack of connection more than psychopathology and all those fancy terms, more than emotional psychological damage, but lack of connection to God, to oneself and to others is really the core issue. Francis Schaeffer has put it very well when he said that the consequences of sin really is separation or disconnection, same word. Uh, separation from God, obviously, from others and from oneself. And he also adds from nature and talks about our ecological problems. Um, and my concern is that when you get down to the core of things, that the real things that are going on in the human soul have to do with, with a lack of connection. The job of the church is to help people reconnect to God themselves and one another and that we have the power to do that. And if you ask, <laughs> if you ask me to summarize it again tomorrow, I'm sure I'd put it very differently. But that's that's the beginning. I, you know, one of the um, um, well, uh, one of the things that I that I think is, is is crucial is that we 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 have lost, I think, something of an understanding of the fact that life and death are in the power of the tongue. That the Proverbs 18:21 is that where it is? I think. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And Paul in Ephesians 4 talks about speaking only wholesome words, uh, words that are, that are there to edify, to speak to people according to the need that they have at the moment. What does it mean to speak powerful words to people, to speak life words to people? We've all heard so many death words. And if you look at all the things that we're struggling with, most of the things that people are struggling with are the result of death words that we've heard. Um, one, one simple illustration, it's an old one of mine, but it comes to my mind just to make the point. I remember working with a fellow a number of years ago who was struggling with significant depression, and he came to see me as a psychologist professionally because of, struggles, uh, because of his struggles with depression and uh, feeling very useless, and uh, his marriage was falling apart, his wife was losing confidence in him, his business was dying, he wasn't uh, uh, giving himself to his work, he was backing away from everybody, and he was diagnosed with a psychological problem. His physician says, you have clinical depression, you need psychotherapy, he was a Christian, he came to see me, I was in private practice. And one of the pivotal events when his depression began uh, took place um, about 20 years earlier, laying the seeds for long-term depression, when his father, who had been a third-world individual uh, who was raised very, very poor, went from rags to riches and developed a huge empire, huge financial empire, major conglomerate of, of uh, uh, businesses where he was a very wealthy man. And he had four sons, and my client was the oldest of the four. Um, 20 years earlier, when his dad had died, my client was with his father on his deathbed, and his father, a profane man, I will not use the language he used, but what he said to his son, his last words before he died were these, when I die, you will inherit the company, you will take it over. My guess is within one year you'll drive it bankrupt, you're useless, and he died. Now, what is the effect of, of death words like that? What does that do to the human soul? Well, how do you reverse that? How do you speak life words to that individual? And we have made the mistake in our culture of assuming that those kinds of death words, those kinds of uh, traumatic experiences, those abusive experiences, all the bad things that happen to people, that they have produced something in the psyche that only the professional can tease apart and understand. And my suggestion is no. What they've, what they've done is they've, um, they, 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 they've, they've produced something in the human soul that has been responded to in a very fleshly way that has resulted in certain kinds of problems that life words can actually speak to. And I believe that we have the power, but we don't see it sometimes, to, to speak life words to even those kinds of situations, let alone the, 
the less traumatic sounding kind of situations. I, I believe there's a power in the Christian community that has gone going largely uh, unexploited. And I feel like my calling and mission is to do what I can to think about that and to encourage the exploitation of the power that in fact is available. Please define glory as you used it from John 17:22. I didn't quite catch it. Um, I heard a better definition this morning that I tried to use last night. I forget who it was that shared it with me. Yes, ma'am. She said that um, as she's been studying the word glory, that the notion of displayed excellence is a, a definition that her studies have yielded. And I'm not sure if I can improve on that. I think that's wonderful. Displayed excellence. But whenever you see the word glory, particularly in the New Testament, I think it has the idea. You can almost substitute the word reveal for the word glory. And you haven't changed the meaning at all. When, 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 the, when the father said to the son in John 12, somewhere, uh, the father said, uh, I, I have glorified my name. Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. What he's saying is reveal your name. Make known who you are. Display your excellence. And then the, the father responded, I have glorified my name. Meaning, I believe, that if you, uh, anybody who's watched your life for these 33 years has seen my character revealed in the way you've lived, and I will glorify it again, the very depths of my grace will be revealed in the fact that you're going to go die now at my will and at your submission to my will, and that's going to reveal something at the depths of my character. It's going to display my excellence. So when the Lord said that I've given them the glory that you have given me, I believe what he's saying is he's given us the opportunity to display the excellence of the character of God in the way we relate to each other. Which means that when you offend me, I could actually forgive you. Um, which means that when my wife and I get into a tussle about something, I could actually be kind as opposed to mean. Um, and I could actually, as I, as I work with somebody, I could actually uh, speak words to them. Uh, something out of me could be released. The excellence of the character of Christ actually could come out of me in a way that would, would arouse that which is profoundly wonderful within you and encourage you then with the glory that's within you to be revealed in the way you relate. And as that, is, as that happens, I think it takes care of most of what our culture calls psychological problems. Does that respond? Yeah. In that verse, though, John 17, 22, could you substitute reveal? Uh, I have given them the capacity for revealing yourself. Uh-huh. So that they can, they can enjoy Trinitarian community. So that we can get along because we're going to relate the same way the Father and Son and the Spirit relate. As I reveal the character of Christ in my relationship with you, we can be one. That's how I would see it. Larry, um, in talking with, interacting with younger generations, they tend to have been uh, brainwashed into thinking that if they have a problem, it's really not their fault. Yes. Um, I tend to blame the psychological community for doing such an excellent job of conveying that message so thoroughly. But uh, how do you help people dig out of that hole? Because until they come to grips with their own sense of responsibility, it's hard to uh, get beyond that. Uh, let, me, let me comment on your first thought and then see if I can respond to your good question. Um, I, I think you're, you're, you're very correct in that um, modern, modern psychotherapy, which really has been around for only 100 years until until Freud, 1895, it didn't really exist as a profession at all. Um, helpful talking became professionalized at the end of the uh, 19th century. Um, in 1895, it began. And, and the idea of talking to people helpfully uh, began, beca began to be a specialist profession at that time. 
And what, what Freud what was onto, and Freud was a genius, I think in many respects, but he led us in some very wrong directions, I believe. And one of the major errors that I think he made um, was to suggest that the, that the traumas of childhood inflicted a damage on the human psyche, he wouldn't have used the word soul, uh, on, the, on the psychodynamic processes that, um, that rendered a person helpless to change. Um, and it really did become sort of a medical model that if, uh, if, somebody, if somebody hits you in the face and you bleed, nobody would blame you for bleeding. That's simply what you do when you're traumatized by somebody's unkindness to you by hitting you. And um, the, the message has been consistently down through the last hundred years of the development of psychotherapy that, um, that the real problems that you have are the result of the ways you've been, you've been traumatized. Now, I think the Christian community has sometimes made a mistake in going, uh, going so far over here to say that, oh, stop fussing about all your pain. So what? You're still responsible, and that's all there is to it. And I think that's a harsh, unfeeling response. I think it's very insensitive. Uh, talk to a person who's been very badly sexually abused and just say to them, well, big deal, you just need to be responsible now. And I think that's cruel because the traumas of childhood and the traumas of life generally are, are very painful and they are very hard. Um, I, I think we need to come to grips with whether we're, are we victims or agents? And m my answer is that we're, we're agents first and last, but in the middle we are victims. Um, I have a good friend whose who's, who's wife left him. And I don't believe that he needs to take responsibility for the fact that she left him. I think he's a victim of his, of his wife's um, very sinful choices, very ungodly behavior. And I think he's been victimized. Now, having said that, I think he's still fully responsible and capable because of what the Spirit of God does within him to handle that victimization in very godly ways. Like the people in this room... If they had something that they were working through, they would be, my hunch is, they would be disinclined to trace that to their parents or their, they'd just say, I have this inclination and I've really got to outgrow it. Whereas a person in their 30s or 40s would say, well, my mother was an enabler yes. and my father was, That's right, you know. that's the new vocabulary. And so how do we help them? And it all may be true. I mean, their modeling may have been poor. How do we help them? get up to a starting point to begin the healing process. Well, let me give you a theological answer as opposed to a practical answer because I make it my goal in life to never be practical. Practice, but it'll never work in theory. <laughs> I bet he got straight A's. <laughs> um, the, the, the question is that younger folks, when the problem comes up, they're unlike older folks uh, who have been reared in a different way of thinking, perhaps. They're going to be inclined to say that I have this particular tendency because of certain things that happened with my mother, my father, whatever. And how can they learn to take responsibility for what needs to be done rather than blame shifting and uh, blaming the difficulties in their parents. Again, let me just, just contrast two different positions. Um, one position is kind of victim first and last, and you need help 
from an outsider to resolve the difficulties, and then you're able to move. That's the victim position. The other position is kind of the hard-nosed responsibility position, which gives no room for the reality of pain and difficulty. Now, I don't want to espouse either position. What I would argue, I think, and this is maybe my attempt at a feeble theological answer, is the way to think about helping that person, not the procedure, but the thought process within you as a helper, is, is to think in terms of what does it mean that within this person, assuming they're a believer now, I'm going to assume that, within this person you have a flesh-spirit struggle. Um, the Bible tells us to mortify the deeds of the flesh. The Bible tells us to, um, to walk in the spirit, will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does the flesh-spirit struggle have to do with your question? Well, in my mind, um, the... Reality of the spirit, I'm speaking about the human spirit now, the new heart that the Holy Spirit is there to energize and to whisper that we belong to God, Abba, that sort of thing, that the fact that we're regenerate under the new covenant means that I have all the resources within me now to please God at any moment regardless of what has taken place. And there is an inclination within me to do that. Now, if in fact I've been deeply wounded by a friend who's betrayed me, I would argue that the pain of that might, might have some necessary consequences that I'm not going to be able to laugh as well at a joke right now. It just hurts too much. But there's no reason in the world why I have to sin in reaction to that because and I have an inclination not to. Uh, I have the spirit within me. And as that spirit is aroused within me, and as you believe in me, and as you, the, the, the Puritans used to talk about, the root to sanctification is mortify the, mortify the flesh and vivify the spirit. And they, they're summarizing all the verses in spirit and flesh battle with those two concepts. And, and as, you, as you believe in me in the middle of how badly I've been victimized, how much I'm hurting, how much the pain is, the, the, the memory of the abuse that has come back perhaps, all that sort of thing, as you, as you believe in me, you're, what you're saying to me is there is an inclination within you to do more than blame the past and to excuse present irresponsibility. There's more than my simply imposing my view on you that you should be responsible. Why don't you get with it? Rather than that, there is something in you that longs and wants to be responsible. That's very, very different in my mind. One is arousing that which is there. The other is imposing what I believe you ought to do. And the impositional model, in most cases, will meet with resistance or compliance which will end up being a phony sort of responsibility. With neither, uh, with, with imposition, neither response is going to be good, either resistance or compliance. That's not spiritual fruit. But, but rather than the impositional model, if there's an arousal model, which basically says in the middle of how badly your wife has hurt you, um, your wife has just been abusive, she's been awful, she screamed at you, and you're sitting here pouting, and uh, rather than my saying, look, stop being a victim. You could actually take responsibility and be a decent guy. Why don't you be biblical to her? You have all the power. Ephesians 5, why don't you love your wife because of the church? And here's the way to do it. Here's my assignment to you. I think that's impositional. I think rather than that, uh, I would want to say to that person who's been badly abused by his wife, just to make up an example here, is there anything in you that wants to do anything other than pout? Is there anything in you that wants to do anything other than get even with her? I'm so mad at her, I just want to get even. I just feel so destroyed. All I want to do is just watch television and forget about living. I'm just so mad. All right, if that's all that is, is in you, I can't help. I can't do anything. You're done. And, and let me say it, this will sound harsh. I wouldn't say this to a, maybe a person I'm chatting with quite like this, but as I said up here, um, if there's nothing else in you but a desire for revenge or retreat, if there's nothing else in you but that, no inclination, you're not a believer. Because if you're a believer, you got the spirit within, you got a new heart. You want to do something besides that.
Um, let me give you a quick illustration to make the point, and I'll try to make this brief, but it's an um, illustration I happened a couple of months ago, and I mentioned it in some other context, and it occurs to me now. Four or five months ago, I was feeling really crummy one afternoon, just feeling tired and sick, and so I went to bed. And um, my wife is coming in, and she's part of this illustration. Her timing is perfect. Um, she's heard it before, right? She saw the movie, right? I went to I went to bed one afternoon, and you know, like most men, when you feel badly, isn't there a certain cue card you hold up at, at that point to your wife? You know, you want a certain response. Well, when I feel badly, I think my wife ought to be very sensitive and solicitous, and you know, like my mother was, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, and so I went to bed and kind of made the appropriate as I went to bed, and thinking that would alert her. Um, and she was downstairs, our bedroom was the second floor of her home, and she was downstairs, and she called out, and she said, Larry, I'm going to go for an errand. And I thought, you're going to go on an errand? <laughs> I thought that to myself. Now, I'm using a silly illustration, but to make the point that I think is, is, is relevant to what you're asking, uh, I said, you're, you're going to go on an errand. I didn't say out loud, but I thought, you're going to go on an errand. You know, when you get home, I might be dead. <laughs> and I remember internally just feeling annoyed. Now, question, where did the annoyance come from? Spirit or flesh? Make it real simple. You only have two sources of all that's coming out of you. is only one of two sources. It isn't how your mother treated you. It's either flesh or spirit. And whatever comes out of you is either the fruit of the flesh or the fruit of the spirit. Now, I'm upstairs in bed, and I'm annoyed with my wife. Is that consistent with loving my wife as Christ loved the church? The answer is no. Is it the fruit of the spirit or fruit of the flesh? I think it's the fruit of the flesh. And uh, so she goes out on her errand, and I remember thinking to myself, given that I'm really feeling rather poorly, and she knows I'm feeling poorly, she won't be gone long. So I, in my mind, I figured long would be, you know, she won't be gone more than maybe 20, 30 minutes. She's gone an hour and a half. And I'm looking at my watch, feeling badly and thinking, where is this woman who claims to love me? So when she finally came back, I heard the garage door go up. I know she's coming in. And I figured the first thing she'd do is kind of run upstairs and say, how are you? We all get our agendas that come out of our flesh. And again, silly story with, I think, some very important points beneath it. And when she came in, my first thought was, she'll run upstairs and see how I am. I heard her come in the house and I heard her go to the phone. She didn't answer it. She dialed it. <laughs> and she talked on the phone for an hour. Now, what's happening inside of me? Am I a victim? And see, what, what, is, what does a victim do? A victim justifies a fleshly response as inevitable because of a perceived disappointment. The victim justifies a sinful, ungodly, wrong, fleshly response as necessary, as justified. Um, that's why I think Romans 7 talks about the law arouses sinful passions. Um, I think the idea there is that here I am, a, a person who is hurting, and our culture, hurt becomes the dominant thing, and I really believe that everybody's mission in life is to understand my hurt. And then God comes along and says, Larry, I want you to love your wife. And my response is, wait, wait a minute, don't you understand I'm hurting? And he says, love your wife. And I say, well, not, not at this moment, right? And his answer was, well, yeah, love your wife. Be obedient to me. Love your wife. And my response is, you don't understand. And the fact that you don't understand kind of makes me mad. And frankly, it justifies that you're so insensitive. It justifies that I can, I'm, I'm right in, in how I'm responding here. Well, she came upstairs finally after talking the phone for a while. I, I, remember, I remember just feeling very annoyed. I mean, I really, I really was, I mean, I wasn't furious and enraged. I'm far too godly for that. Um, <laughs> But I did feel I was really, I was really peeved. <laughs> Is that a mild enough word? 
and um, and I think the whole victim-agent thing comes in here because rather than saying, now listen to what I could have done. I could have made one of two mistakes. Either I could have said, all right, um, I'm mad and I think it's reasonable. And when she goes upstairs, I could say something like, I could share with her. I could I could communicate. And I could say, honey, can I share with you how you made me feel? How much marital communication is nothing but the expression of the flesh? Can I share with you how I feel? Let me tell you how you made me feel. I don't want to give any you messages or give I messages. Let, I will tell you how I feel when you did this. <laughs> and we're going to communicate now on the basis of my sharing this sort of a thing. We're going to process all this and work it all through. One thing is to base, and out of that, if I'm doing all that, out of the posture of a victim in the flesh, we'll, we'll get nowhere. There's nothing of the spirit alive at that moment. They're being expressed at least. The other extreme could be, I know that's all wrong, and I shouldn't be mad at my wife. Bible says put away anger. The sun shouldn't go down upon your wrath. Okay, it's 4.30. we got three hours before i got to deal with this. Um, so i got to be nice to my wife. So I'll make a choice. I'm a responsible agent. I will be nice to my wife when she walks in the bedroom door. That's what I'll do because I'm a Christian and I know that my anger is wrong and fleshly, so I will do the right thing because I'm an agent. Now, how does that work? When she walks in the door and you say, Hi, honey, do you have a you know, good errand? Where, what did you do? You're gone a fair amount of time. What were you, you know... The, the point that I'm making is something of the flesh will seep out even as you try to be obedient. So now you have two options. Just kind of chosen obedience as an agent or given your victimization and disguise it with you know communication techniques or whatever. And I would suggest there's a middle ground. There's a biblical way. What's the biblical way? There's more to me than my anger. There's more than just a responsibility to be kind to my wife. There's a desire to be kind to my wife, even at my worst moment. That needs to be vivified, aroused, inflamed. And I believe that's where Christian community does its most profound work. It's why I have people who believe that at the point of my greatest ugliness, I'm still alive in Christ. And can I believe that as she walks in the door, that there's still something in me that, that, that longs to nourish her soul? And can I start thinking, well, if I jumped all over her, What's the damage that I'm going to do to her? I don't want to do that. I love the lady. That's not what the Spirit of God wants to do in me. And as I started thinking like that, which I did, when she came in, there was a release of the goodness. And I was kind to her. And it wasn't a chosen, disciplined act. It was a, a release of what I really want to be. And it was a choice. There was discipline. There was responsibility. But it was a responsible choice to yield what the Spirit of God has put in me. See, that's the whole difference. Now, just to finish the story quickly, and I'll stop my too lengthy answer. Um, one of the neat things that God sometimes does when you when you do you know, kind of keep in step with the Spirit. Where's that phrase? Uh, Peter somewhere. Um, walk in the Spirit, Paul, of course. Sometimes when you do that, the the, the Lord just kind of gives you a little uh, a little sense of how, how 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 good it is. It was the next day, if I recall right. My wife's father died March 10th. At age 92, and this was this happened a few months before that, and um, it was the next day after the event I've just described in too much detail that she got a difficult phone call that her father was clearly failing, and that death was was going to be imminent. And she she got the word the day after the event I just told me about. Went to bed that next night, and I remember my wife said to me, "Larry, it's really hard for me now with my dad moving toward death. Would you just hold me? May I tell you something?" If I'd have responded in the flesh the night before, she never would have said that. Because she wouldn't have trusted me. And she shouldn't have. 
but because there was something of the Spirit that came out of me, it gave me the opportunity to hold my wife when she was really struggling. So that's my response to the the victim-agent thing. You've got to do more than just impose responsibility or indulge victimization. Both are wrong. If you've got to make a decision on one of those two, I suppose I'd stick with the responsibility side. But neither one gets at the potential that's ours because of the Spirit of God. Rather than imposing responsibility or indulging victimization by exploring it endlessly or by commanding uh, endlessly, I think there's something about arousing the work of the Spirit within that is going on if you belong to Christ. I need that microphone for the sake of the tape, I guess. Larry, we have a uh, counseling network made up of about uh, 10 counselors, many of whom you trained. And uh, they stay uh, constantly busy, uh, traveling all over the world, uh, meeting with our staff, helping our staff. Uh, What would be the application from what you're telling us this weekend, if there is one, for... uh, for, for our staff counselors? Uh, the implications, I think, are primarily two. Um, one is I f- uh, fully support and believe in the idea of counselors. Um, I've been training them for 14 years up until a year or two ago. And um, guys like Larry, Larry's here, and some others that I've had some input with and some other folks, um, I'm proud of and excited for, and Lord bless them and turn them loose. Um, I, think th- I think the first implication for those who do formal counseling um, is to realize that the essence of Christian counseling is what I've just said. It is not to endlessly explore the past. Endlessly explore the past, which I think is typical of counselors, uh, nor to, in an attempt to Christianize that, to become uh, rigidly behavioral. Uh, I think there are ways to counsel formally, professionally, that do reflect the truths of the, uh, of, of the Christian faith, um, so I would. I'm, I'm still. I'm going to be involved in our counseling program up at CCU. I'm going to be involved in an adjunct or part-time or whatever basis. And um, the reason I still want to be involved is I still think it's a wonderful thing to have people go out and professionally counsel. But I think that a, a certain understanding of the Christian life and of sanctification um, should guide counselors' efforts to um, to 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 not. Uh, indulge either in what I mentioned the other night, a do it right or a fix what's wrong, but rather a release what's good model. There's lots of implications for that. So that's one implication. There is a way to do counseling that I think grows out of uh, Christian understanding. The second major implication would be that... um, uh, Let me me sketch something here. Let me take just a minute to respond to your question. It might give me a, a better answer to your question if I just talk about it for a minute. Uh, let's see how I can do this. Um, somebody exhibits a presenting problem. Somebody in the on the staff uh, makes known that they're struggling with um, um, some pretty significant depression, some panic attacks, some major marital difficulties, um, maybe something a little more unusual, some multiple personality kind of issues, and and you decide this is a case for one of our counselors. So a counselor goes over to deal with that particular situation. Um, is a counselor necessary to deal with that situation? Um, what, what I want to argue, and I'm going to say this quickly, and it's going to be more confusing than helpful, but let me just do it anyhow. Um, I, I believe that beneath the presenting problem, there really is a flesh-spirit struggle. 
And I believe that the essence of resolving whatever the presenting problem is, caveat, very important, if the presenting problem does not have an essential organic basis. If there's a chemical neurological basis, then we're not talking about that. At that point, get a physician, get a professional expert. I think there are many categories where what I'm talking about has no relevance at all. Learning disabilities, attention deficit disorder, uh, obsessive compulsive syndrome oftentimes has a possibility of neurological basis, uh, bipolar problems, mood disorders have difficulties along these lines, certain psychotic issues, schizophrenia, paranoia. Those kind of things are, are out of the league of what I'm talking about here. Okay? And I think those kind of problems require the services of a trained, uh, trained professional no differently than diabetes or cancer or broken legs or you know, whatever the difficulty might be, and I'm all for that. So take those particular problems and kind of put them off on the side, not because they're unimportant, but because they're out of the league of what I'm talking about here. Is that clear enough so far? Um, but there's a whole lot of other things that are not in those categories. And I believe that whatever the problems are come out of a flesh-spirit struggle, and I believe that... Um, that if you start looking at what the flesh really is, let me take five minutes on this and see if I can make something clear. If you, um, if you try to look at what, what in fact is the flesh, I think we can define the flesh very simply as, um, and I'm going to get to your question, we can define the flesh very simply as any approach to life that doesn't have God at the center. Any approach to life that doesn't have God at the center. Any attempt to make life work without complete dependence on the reality of who God is through Jesus Christ as the Spirit enables any approach to life, any approach to handling sexual abuse as a child, any, any approach to handling a drunken father who beat you when you were a kid, any approach to handling a divorce, any approach to handling ministry failure, any approach to handling marital disaster, any approach to anything without God at the center is the flesh. Therefore, most personal problems really ultimately grow out of an attempt to handle life without God at the center. Now, what does that look like? Well, it looks very simply like this. If the foundation of the flesh is basically um, doubting God. You know, God is not the one to trust. If the foundation of the flesh is, I'm not going to trust him. He's not worthy of trust. I don't believe he can handle this one. I mean, where was he when I prayed that God would protect me from the abuser? Well, he didn't do anything, and I got raped three times, and he's worthy of trust. You've got to be kidding. Well, that just feeds the flesh that's already there. And once you doubt God, once God is no longer the center of your life, then you, you are required to live in denial. You cannot face truth about yourself and about life, once you doubt God, there's two elements of truth you cannot face. You cannot face the pain of your life and its, and its depths, and you cannot face the sin in your life. You can't do it without God. You can't face the horror of life without God, because only in the hope of God can you face the reality the way it really is. And you can't face sin, because if you face what, a, what an awful sinner we are, there's no one there to forgive us. You don't know God, so you've got to deny sin, you've got to deny pain. You've got to reduce sin to something more manageable and reduce pain to something you can handle. The only pain you can face is that which you can anesthetize. So you've got you to deny. And then once you deny, once you're committed to denying pain and sin, then you end up, as life inflicts you with a variety of things, experiencing all these psychological dynamics, all these things of, well, how did you feel when your mother abandoned you? And what happened to you when your wife uh, betrayed you by having an affair? And what are all the internal realities? You felt anger, you felt guilt, you felt betrayed, you felt like you're worth nothing. All these psychological dynamics issues that go on which then lead to some way of trying to handle them, some basic life strategy, if you will. I'm going to handle this somehow. I'm going to be um, uh, the woman who's been badly abused. I'm never going to give the tenderest part of my soul. I'm going to be um, sexually dead. I'm going to be entirely non-provocative. I'm going to uh, handle life by never being alive as a woman because of all my difficulties. And that's the basic life strategy, the commitment the woman makes, which then leads to um, a variety of ways that she relates, style of relating. It leads to her to relate in certain ways. And I believe that's the foundation 
of this problem. Now, what are we to do with the flesh? Understand it and fix it? What are we to do with the flesh? Well, we're to mortify it. We're to kill it. The word mortify means to kill. We're to mortify the deeds of the flesh. What does that mean? It's a big question. We're supposed to vivify the spirit. What's the spirit? Well, the new, the new heart within us is the opposite of all that I just sketched. Now it's a deep trust in God. God, whatever ha- whatever's happened, it's all part of a large tapestry, even the most horrible things of life, even the most difficult memories. Even the most difficult things that have happened to us are all part of a, something which you've allowed, God. That you, didn't, you weren't the author of the rape, but you certainly allowed it. And can I trust you in the middle of it? To this you recall that we might suffer and, and following the example of Christ as he suffered. Is there something that we can do to trust God? And if we really do trust God, then we can face with no denial the deepest longings of our heart and we realize that we long for what we don't have and we can also face the deepest sin, the deepest depravity within us because we know there's no condemnation. We have a God who's forgiven us. So there's no longer any pretense required in the spiritual life which then leads not to all the psychological dynamics as a major issue but let's call them spiritual dynamics that... That yes, this what has happened is bad, and yes, it's very difficult. And and the fact that my father was a perfectionist who demanded that I always get A's, and when I got the first B, he beat me, and all that sort of thing. Now in the spirit, when I remember that kind of a thing, there can be a spiritual dynamic as opposed to a merely fleshly psychological dynamic. And I say that was very, very hard. And Dad was so wrong for what he did. He did not reflect God whatsoever. And yes, I do struggle with bitterness, but there's something in me that can still trust God that's bigger than my bitterness. Those are spiritual dynamics, which then leads to a very different approach to life. And now you have very different goals. Your basic goal is not, a, is not to, to prove that you're going to you know, rebel against your father by doing a variety of things or always get A's and pass on the perfectionism to your kids, but your basic commitment is to somehow reflect the reality of God in the middle of all the hardships of life, which then lead to a very different style of relating. And you'll begin to relate very differently. What's it going to do to the problem? It's going to change the problem around. Most presenting problems. Now, here's, here's the point that's going to get to the question that was asked. I believe that what I heard you folks talking about the last hour, and I just left thrilled hearing the conversations that you all had for this last hour. I thought it was wonderful. I believe that one thing you've been hearing me say for the last couple of days is that dispensing grace, S G, dispensing grace, is the is, is the key to shepherding. And I believe that when you dispense grace, and I've given some simple illustrations of jumping up and down and pulling the one's head to one's chest and telling the young lady, "I don't see a prostitute within you," and and just to make it even more simple, just being there listening and caring and, and involving and paying attention to what's happening in people's lives with the spirit of, uh, of acceptance and valuing. And when I hear bad things, I don't define you as awful. There's no judgment. Yes, there may be a time for discipline and confrontation and all that. But even that's in the spirit of grace. You're still my brother. You're still my sister. And I still love you deeply. Even as I spank my child, there's still a, a gleam in my eye of what you can become. Dispensing grace really reflects... Paul's spirit in Galatians 4.19, Now when the pains of childbirth, so Christ is formed in you. That's the spirit of grace. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just so eager. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm in pain. I want so much to see Christ formed in you. All that he's done could make you into such a lovely creature. You could be some, so wonderful. I believe that as shepherds learn to dispense grace, that the effect is, many times, you will not have to deal with this whole mess called the flesh. Many times, when you dispense grace richly, 
You will not have to deal with the issues of the flesh. And what you in fact are doing is you are vivifying the spirit. A deeper trust in God begins to develop, which then leads to the whole rest of the spirit. Now, what I believe is this. I believe when the body of Christ is functioning meaningfully, and this and grace is being dispensed in rich ways among brothers and sisters in Christ, that, let me make up a number, I have no idea if I'm right, a whole bunch, 80%, I don't know, 80% of the problems that people have are going to be meaningfully dealt with by grace dispensing among the body of Christ. But I do believe there are going to be some times when some difficulties and some stubbornnesses and some struggles are not going to yield just to that. And the dispensing of grace is going to take on a little more specialized form. And that's where the spiritual director, the counselor, the person who maybe understands more of these things can actually get more meaningfully involved. And that's the place for the, I don't like the term specialist, but that's the place for somebody who's thought things through a little bit more, who does more than, I don't want to say merely now, but who does more than just richly and meaningfully accept that more can be involved. The mistake I've made in my mind for the past 20 years, in my professional efforts, the mistake I've made is, where have I put most of my efforts, do you suppose? Here's three elements. Dispensing grace, vivifying the spirit, dealing with the flesh. Most of my efforts have been to understand and deal with this. And I've worked hard to figure out what is the effect of sexual abuse. I've worked hard to understand what is the pain that's being denied. I've worked hard to deal with a conscience that has not been fully alive. I've worked hard to come up with uh, ways to expose the basic life strategy and to deal with the way people relate. And I've, I've worked so hard at that. And do I think that's a good thing to do? Yeah, but it no longer is priority in my mind. It used to be priority, now it's not. That's the difference. Now my priority is right here with what I think this weekend we're calling shepherding. And I think that's fantastic. But I think there's still going to be a place for a couple of people who are unusually burdened and gifted to think these things through, to go, I don't want to say beyond in a way of demeaning it, but to go beyond just the incredible richness of giving and grace and arousing the spirit and believing in people and jumping up and down and, and all that and listening to their stories. And there's going to be a time or two when you're going to be chatting with people along that line and you're, you're not going to see happen what you wish were happening and maybe somebody who God has called to think through some other issues about how to deal with these things might step in at that point and that's where the counselor has a place or the spiritual director which is a term I'm coming to prefer okay uh, this a little bit is contrary to our emphasis on eldering but I, I wanted to slip it in since you and I discussed it a little bit it seems to me that for a healthy spiritual life, we have to be a part of a healthy spiritual body. And since most of us are part of an apostolic type gifting set, it seems to me one of the most helpful things that we could do is to help develop biblical community in our own local areas. and that our staff that are in those kind of biblical communities would, in fact, be cared for, a la your basic thesis. Um, that won't totally eliminate the need for encouragement by elders and that sort of thing, but uh, it just seems to me that we're better positioned than almost anyone to help pioneer and help coach. I personally think the adult Sunday school class body life model yes. is the best ministry 
opportunity available in America today. Hmm. Uh, I mean, there's just nothing any better. And we know how to help people develop biblical community. Uh, wouldn't that be more of a part of a solution than a network of, uh, of elders? I'm not talking about the organizational side of the fence. I'm just talking about body health. If I hear what you're saying, I, I think I strongly agree. Rachel and I would very strongly affirm that our major f- source of rich community right now is our Sunday school class, our adult Sunday school class, and that uh, the notion of being involved in some sort of a biblical community, healing community, graceful community, grace-dispensing community, um, I'd like to see that as a, as a very central focus in our work, uh, where all of us are involved with that and, and, and working hard to encourage that process. And if you're wanting to put that at the center, then I just say a loud amen to it. I, I think that's a very fair emphasis and good point. And I think that's, I think that if I can just say one more thing as the microphone's being carried, that, um, that um, the notion of developing ongoing community at the local level is probably something that should receive more priority than spreading elders across the country. And that's maybe what I think you're saying. And if that's the case, then I think that's what I'm agreeing with. And it's not either Yeah, of course not. No. But I want to see ongoing natural community. Um, I do think that there are certain people in my life, just personal experience, which is not normative, of course, mm-hmm. certain people in my life that are not part of my ongoing natural community that minister to me with unbelievable depth occasionally now and then. And I don't want to disparage taken off and we don't pray the same prayer that David prayed about take not your spirit from me he's he's there um, so there is going to be um, when a person says no I, I'll I'll find some way or work very hard to, to to demonstrate to them that that's not the case and I might do that in a variety of ways I might say if a person says all I want is revenge then I might um, and this has to be handled carefully but I might say then let's together plot the very worst possible damage you can do to your wife and let's understand how vicious you really are capable of being. And tell me how delicious this sounds to you. And as I move in that direction, the person, well, wait, wait, I don't want to do all that. Oh, you don't? So there is something else then? You know? So that's, that's one way. But if the person says, well, yeah, there is something besides, besides revenge within me, I think the obvious thing, this is not any big technical procedure, I think I'd say something really clever like, what? <laughs> you know? And, and I don't know what they'd say. I can make up a conversation. But I think the idea would be that I would really press for... for now, here, here's two points. I would press for the recognition, uh, for the articulation. That's the word I want. I would press for the articulation of the fact that there is a passion within them that's better than the bad passion. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, his book on religious affections, is a marvelous source for this kind of thing. He talks about bad affections and good affections. Bad urges, good urges. And it's just a terrific treatise on that. Um, and I, w- I would press for the articulation of, well, then tell me what it is that you want to do. You do have revenge within you. You're not in heaven yet, so you still have a sin nature, and there are times within you that aren't very ugly, that aren't very pretty and pretty ugly. But there's something else inside of you. What else do you want to do towards your wife besides revenge? Is there any recognition within you that your wife maybe is a hurting woman beneath her nastiness? And that there's something about her soul that you actually do treasure and would like to bless. Is there anybody that you've seen, some older couple, and you've watched the man bless his wife and you'd like to be like that? And I would press for the articulation of that. But then I think what I'd press for, secondly, 
is to, um, I, I would press for the person to believe, to understand, that whatever this good urge is, coming out of the whole spirit, if you will, whatever the good urge is, at least, at the very, very least, has the potential to be stronger than the strongest bad urge. And then at that point, you can say what Zane Hodges has said in one of his commentaries on Galatians. He said that, that, that the Christian is one who, when he, and I'm not, I'm not quoting him, but this is the gist. The Christian is one who, when he or she understands what is most alive within him, is free to absolutely indulge his deepest desire. So therefore, when the man in the hotel room on a business trip says, I want to watch pornography, I would say to him, indulge your deepest desire. And he would be, great, put it on. And I would say, no, wait a minute, is that your deepest desire? And if he's a believer, my answer is no, it's not. Now, it might be feebly weak, his desire to be holy. And the desire for the sinful uh, behavior might be incredibly strong, and he might give in to it and watch. And I never want to encourage that process, of course. But what I want to say to the man who's revengeful uh, toward his wife is that your desire to bless your wife if it isn't now, has the potential to become far stronger than your desire for revenge. Now let's figure out what it means to nourish and nurture that desire to bless your wife. And we can nurture and nourish that by a number of things, by looking at models. I think one of the things that helps me the most is seeing, is seeing how some older folks, treat, older than me, treat their wives. I mean, I think that's one of the highlights for me of this weekend, just watching a couple of folks that are my seniors and just sensing some of the warmth in them toward their spouses. And my thought is... You know, that's in me toward Rachel, too. I want it to be more. And maybe I'll think of that when I get mad at her next time. You see? So I think that's one of the issues about the, the modeling is a very strong issue. Um, another issue is just the issue of, of, of as you think most deeply about what you want to be remembered for with your wife. You know, you die. What do you want your wife to say at your funeral? He got even. And will that, you know, from heaven cause you great joy as you hear that? And he's like, no. Oh, really? Something else besides your revenge? Yes. Well, let's nourish that. Let's talk about that. Tell me where joy would come from. You see, the, 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 the devil's a liar. What's his biggest lie? There's a way that seems right. Like revenge. It just seems so right. Given what she did, I think she ought to pay for that. That just seems so right and so satisfying. And the end they're over, the ways of, yes, joy, and, well, no. Darn. Man, you get stuck with Christianity because nothing else works. And so then you just kind of, you know, chicken and scream and say, no, wait a minute. That way is wrong. The way that seems wrong to actually forgive and to bless those who despitefully use you, the way that seems wrong really does give me a sense of joy. Man, that's weird. So that's what the Christian life is all about. So you just nourish it in those ways. Other, need a microphone up front here? Another? Or uh, disorders that need a professional counselor. Yes. yes. How do we lay people that don't even know what those, uh, how, to, how to identify those different things, how do we handle that? And I think that's one of the places where people that do have some familiarity with these things, um, I think ought to be equipping the elders and shepherds in the church. And ought to be able to say that here are the kind of things that when you see them, um, maybe it's time to refer to a physician or to a professional of some sort. I think that we, we, need, we need to train you, frankly, in those areas. I think that's where maybe I could actually feel like a professional. I feel like a professional 5% of the time. I mean, I really don't feel like a professional very often. But I think in those categories, I could. I think I could say to you, 
that if you observe these kinds of things, you may be dealing with a, with a, a person with some paranoid ideation, to use some fancy words, then you could say, well, this is out of my league, legitimately and appropriately. Um, or the ADD, or the whatever. Uh, but understand that little list that I gave, which I think we should be giving some warning signs, and also I think some legal issues are involved here. I think when it comes time for suicidal kind of emergencies, um, there are just some things that we need to be give the Caesar what is his due, and maybe get involved with some support systems that the that the society offers for that kind of deal. But I think some training can be offered in handling suicide emergencies as well. But but notice that I give my little list of things, which I think training in symptoms is appropriate. Um, I hope you heard that the vast majority of things were not in that list, uh, including things that many people would assume should be in the list, like multiple, like eating disorders, like panic attacks, uh, and those kind of things. I don't, I don't put in that list. I think this Elder Shepherd can deal with that. Does that respond enough to your question? I think there's a place for training in that. A couple more questions, I see. Yep. Uh, Larry, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, dispensing grace is based upon the idea that there's uh, something within us that is stronger potentially than evil. Yes. That's the whole foundation of this tech, well, uh, not technique, but um, reality. Reality of dispensing grace. Is that correct? Um, I'm not sure if I want to make that the whole pivot point, but it certainly would be essential, yes. I think I'd, I'd want to. Um, I want to talk about being caught up in the, in the wonder of God, um, being caught up in, in the wonder of how they relate and how they get along, and the John 17 passage that the love that the Father has for the Son could be in me. I'd want to get caught up in all that. But it would come down to the idea that the Spirit of God has done something within me that when it's released um, ha- has the power to touch the human soul that more than anything else longs for what the fall has removed, which is connection. You know, it would be uh, interesting, I think, to most of us here, being a practical organization, if you will, uh, if you give some examples of how you have dispensed grace in the sense that you're talking about here. Just... Well, I, I think the, the, the most uh, satisfying example to me is the one I gave the first night in dealing with our son, uh, where I told the story of our, our older boy. And I won't repeat the entire story, of course, because most of you heard it that first night, but I would think that that was probably the most profound experience of dispensing grace. Um, uh, He told me later that he was so surprised that I wasn't angry at this pivotal point in his life when he had failed very significantly. Our younger son, as I talked to him about it, he said, said, Dad, when when Kep got in trouble in high school, this is several years before the event that I described Friday night, when uh, when Kep got in trouble in high school, he said, you became so angry and you wouldn't talk to anybody in the family for about three weeks, kindly. I mean, you didn't, I wasn't mute, but I just wasn't nice. Um, I was so destroyed because my goals were being blocked. And my goal was, you know, overhead projectors and doing all the right things. And my kids were going to be godly and they weren't. And it's just like somebody's failed me. It's me. I hate myself. It's God. I hate him. It's just all that. And just and hate everybody else. No one's cooperating. And I'm the center of the universe and everybody should pity poor me. And with that kind of a mood... My son told me, he said, for those that particular period of three or four weeks when Kep got in trouble in high school, he said, I, I can't tell you how abandoned I felt. I felt just excluded from you. And then he said, the way you handled him when he got expelled from Taylor, he said, I felt so included. Uh, and I think what he was saying, these aren't his words, but the gist I think of his thought was this. It occurred to me that if I really messed up bad, maybe, maybe I'd get grace out of you. So that's the best example of when I have 
um, uh, dispensed grace, if you will. I rather think that those moments of dispensing grace are more spontaneous than planned. They're they're more uh, anointed than orchestrated, um, and they really come a little more frequently as we walk with the Lord, whatever that means to us. Time in the Word, fellowship, etc. Um, worship, but I, I do think that. Um, one of the points I'm going to make tomorrow morning when I speak again, and I'll just preview it very briefly, is that I think the Christian who is walking with the Lord um, needs to profoundly, and this can be said so badly, so hear it carefully, needs to profoundly trust what is deepest within him at any moment and have the courage to release it. And when that becomes your style of relating, grace will more often be dispensed. Um... One of the things that is true of me is I don't tend to be um, naturally, um, spontaneously warm. Um, when deep, passionate things within me are there, I find myself not wanting to say them. Eh, a little mushy. You know, i got a nice British background. I'm reserved and all that. Um, and there, I think I'm learning a little bit about the times I was with my son for breakfast two weeks ago, whenever it was, a week ago chatting about some pretty heavy things. And at one point, I, I just found myself saying, I, um, I, I would pay any price because I love you so much to see you walk deeply with the Lord. And I just choked up as I said it and he got, you know, um, where I'm uncomfortable doing that. I'd rather say, now son, I think we need to deal with a few things. You know, have you been spending time properly in the scriptures? Let me go over it with you if you can. I think that's appropriate, but there's something deeper in me. And when, when, I, when I trust what I believe is most deeply uh, inclined within me, I think that's when I come closest to dispensing grace. I, I've just uh, related to this. Uh, could you give some example of dispensing grace to the unbeliever in light of trying to uh, expand the good within people? Um, some example of dispensing grace to the unbeliever in light of the idea of releasing good. Uh, we, we do have to say that the unbeliever... Um, that they, if they're if they're an unbeliever, they're they're not forgiven. They stand under judgment, and without the new nature, I'm not sure if we can say at all that there is a, a good to be aroused. There's a need for a good to be received. Um, so we're not looking to arouse goodness in the person who is not fundamentally good. They're fundamentally bad. I think we have to say that. But they still have a longing because they bear the image. They still have a longing um, for. What only God provides. I mean, it's Pascal's thought that's quoted somewhere in one of the papers I saw this week about the heart-shaped, the, the God-shaped vacuum. There still is a longing that's almost a, a memory of Eden, uh, a longing within the unbeliever. And I believe that when grace is dispensed to the unbeliever, that somehow the Spirit of God sometimes can use that to arouse the longing. I think an example would be, um, not an example from my own life, I just finished reading Philip Yancey's new book uh, on grace that isn't, isn't out yet. Um, it's coming out in, I'm not sure when, this summer, I guess. It's called What's So Amazing About Grace? And I had the privilege of endorsing it. And my opening line in my endorsement was, I'm trying to remember when I've read a more important book. That was my first line in my endorsement, and I meant every word of it. Um, Philip talks about, um, Philip talks about um, a lot of things. Let me see what best example I can draw from. He, he talks about having spent some time in his home church in Chicago before he moved up here just to Evergreen uh, a couple years back, in his home church in Chicago, dealing uh, in that church with people who were drawn to the church because there was something about grace in the church. 
he quotes a story of a woman who was a, a prostitute and a woman who, as she got, uh, I don't know how to say this uncrudely, un as she got so used up she was no longer valuable property that she actually sold her six- or seven-year-old daughter into prostitution to make money for her drug habit. And as he tells the story of this particular woman, who I think Philip had the chance to interview, and she said to him, or said to somebody that told Philip the story, she said, um, I would give anything to be around people who would actually believe that I could someday do a little bit better than doing the horrible things I've done with my life. I'd give anything to be around people like that. And the person said, go to church. And she said, I already feel bad enough about myself. Why would I go to a place that will make me feel worse? And with that in Philip's mind, he was very involved in a church that did its best to dispense grace. Philip ends his book in one of the most powerful ways uh, that you could end a book. He talks about being involved with his pastor in passing out the elements of the Lord's table one day in his church. And they did it the particular style they had was people would come forward and they would give the the, the bread and the cup, and this is the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And the way he finishes the book, he said that he, uh, a woman came up who had been a former prostitute and, um, and, uh, and said, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And I just went on and talked about 10 or 11 people and some of their histories. They were all now believers, but they were people who had been drawn to this church because the church was a dispenser of grace saying that, yes, what you've done is heinous. Your sin of selling your daughter into prostitution, how do we define a worse sin than that? But I'm no better. And Jesus' attitude toward you is one of love, meaning he said that is so bad, I had to go die. But I died for you, and as the church became a dispenser of grace, they found the unbelievers just flocking because it was the one church where they didn't feel worse about themselves. And that's not light on sin now. You can make that a light on sin and pervert what I'm saying. Because um, you shouldn't be light on sin. But as you get heavy on sin, get heavier on the solution. Heavier on grace. And I think that's just a marvelous illustration to me of what it means to dispense grace. That's a book you need to buy when it comes out. It'll have a great endorsement on the back. <laughs> All right, it's really time for dinner. If you take one more quickie or whatever, you, you decide. I think we probably have a college quiz. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.